I felt like I needed to be strong for the country because we had stepped into a morass. I believe that the country needed to see that not just me, but that the McCain family were strong. It was the days after that that I learned how, again, to try to be strong. It was the days and months after that. When you're all of a sudden, the, the people are gone, the food that everyone dropped off is gone, and you're alone in the house. And that's where you learn what strength is. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the Skim from a Couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hi, everyone. It is Carly. My guest today is Cindy McCain. She is a businesswoman, a philanthropist, and a humanitarian. Her late husband, John McCain, was a U.S. senator known for being a political maverick and highly respected across the aisle. Their life together put her at the center of American politics for decades. And her new book, called Stronger, details her journey in Washington, D.C., Arizona, and everywhere in between. Mrs. McCain, uh, such an honor to have you. Thank you for joining me. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're really excited. So first of all, you obviously, and you and your family, have lived in the public eye for a very long time. There's a lot we could Google about you, but what is something we can't Google about you? (laughs) Oh, gosh. Some of you can't Google about me. I love to binge programs on television. My favorite being The Curse of the Oak Island. It's on the History Channel. Just stuff like that. I love movies. I love things that entertain me and make me laugh. Just everything that's exciting. Things about teaching, things about learning. I'm trying to keep away from reality TV, but it's hard. It's a vice for some of us. I get it. So I want to start with your family. You grew up in a really entrepreneurial family. Just kind of set the stage. What were you like as a kid? Well, I was an only child and I was raised by two very lovely people, but that started from very, very humble means. And it's really the beauty of America is that my dad, you know, went off to World War II, flew B-17s, came home and built this enormous company because of the strength of America and the strength, the power to try what you would like to try and uh, was very successful at it. But to the day he died, he believed the finest thing that he ever did was serve his country. And so he, even that he had all this, everything else that he'd provided for my mother and I, yet he believed that the best thing he ever did was serving his country. What was your personality like? I was very shy because I was alone a lot. I'm not trying to say I had a lousy life. I did not, (laughs) but uh, I didn't have any brothers or sisters. My childhood was very nice. My parents, we traveled a lot. We were very tight knit. And I think for me, I just was very shy and not very independent, I think would be a good, good term. I was very much reliant on my parents and didn't really explore very much. Do you think that people who grew up with you were surprised how public your life became? Yes, I think absolutely the answer to that question is yes. And I think what they found seeing me, of course, in the situations I was in is that I was very determined with things. And that grew as I got older, obviously. But yes, I think many people have said to me, I never thought it would be you. (laughs) So you started your career teaching in special education. What drew you to that? 
I, I think in the beginning, I just knew I had a calling in something, but I wanted to help others in one way or another. I majored in special education, but I also did kind of a half minor in social work. And so it was all about kids and serving kids and their, our underserved kids and our kids that are so vulnerable. And it was very rewarding for me to do so. And the, the more I got into it, and of course, the more I taught and got to know not just the, the education process with regards to special ed kids, but special ed kids themselves. It was just such a wonderful thing. It was so fulfilling for me. It really was. What lessons did you take from that professional experience that stuck with you? Patience and exhibiting more kindness, more understanding, more empathy and respect. I mean, respect for the individual. Those were all very tight lessons that I learned early on with working with these kids and working with the parents as well that were so affected by the the issues that affected the kids. So I want you to set the stage for me of Hawaii. You were in Hawaii and you meet a certain man. I was in Hawaii on, it was spring break from teaching. And I went with my parents and we happened to be there vacationing. And there was a a friend of ours was attached to SYNCPAC, the SYNCPAC Admiral there. And we had seen him and had dinner with him. And he said, there's going to be a reception in honor of a, a U.S. Senate delegation coming through. They're on their way to China. Would you like to come? And my parents said yes. And I went with them. And at that particular point in my life, I'd said, I am never getting married. I've had enough of these college yahoos. I don't want to, <laughs> <laughs> I don't like dating. I don't like. And so I'd given up everything. I was just going to be professional and lead my life. And this man in the room in, a, in dress white uniform started kind of following me around the room. And I didn't know, I didn't know whether to think he was really weird or that he was really actually very nice. So I, I gambled, took the nice one and we started talking and it went from there. I mean, I was so taken by certainly the uniform, but not, that's not the reason, but who, as who he was and the kind of person he was, I knew nothing about him. So I didn't know he'd been a POW. I didn't know, obviously he was in the Navy, that was evident. But as I got to know him, I, I it was like, this man is unbelievably wonderful. What does he see in me? <laughs> what's, he, what's he interested in me for? But in those days, that was my shyness and my inability to understand that I'm a good person. You know, I am worthy kind of thing in those days. So that was that talking, my insecurities talking. No, it's it's crazy to look back, I'm sure, at that stage of your life and think about all the confidence that you stepped into as you got older. What I was most struck about by your story is growing up, I knew who you were, obviously knew who your husband was. I don't think I had an appreciation for what a transition your life took to become a political spouse and how difficult that that must be. D.C. is not an easy place. And it's it's notoriously known as that. And I was really struck how, what a challenge you had in terms of being taken seriously by some of his colleagues in kind of the the world of DC, that insular bubble. Just for our listeners, set the stage of what I mean by that. Well, to begin with, I thought I was going to be the wife of a naval officer the rest of my life. I mean, that's really where I thought we were going. And of course, things take a different turn as they do. And we wound up in politics and John wound up winning his first election. And what I encountered was a town, a company town 
that was, although many people are very kind there, but doing the job that he was doing were also very cruel and very ruthless. So through the years, it became evident to me that me being taken seriously just wasn't going to happen. I mean, these were people that knew my husband's first wife, who was a lovely woman, and continually compared me to her and all those things that occur when there's a second marriage. And through that, what I had to learn was, is that I had to make sure that people knew who I was and knew, understood that, yes, I was intelligent and yes, I had something to say, but it was a long journey. I'll I'll admit it. What was the moment where you were like, oh, this is not going to be easy? Yeah, I remember calling my mom crying, going, I don't like this town. You know, because we lived there. When John was in the Navy, we had lived there for about a year when we first got married. So I had seen it from the vantage point of non-political. I mean, we were a naval officer with great friends. And so that was really fun. And then as we came back, and I then was a, quote, political spouse, the, the, the whole world changed. And it was hard. It was hard for me. Was there a moment or an instance where you were like, wow, like people are really not seeing me for how intelligent I am, how serious I am? Yeah, there was. And I describe it in my book. It was the encounter I had at our first White House dinner. And it was an encounter with Mrs. Reagan in those days. And Mrs. Reagan, mm-hmm. at that point, knew my husband's ex-wife and she had worked for her. So she had a relationship with her. And I certainly understand that. But the treatment that I got for a young person that just arrived in Washington, the treatment I received that night has stuck with me through every, all these years. I learned then that it takes much less energy to be kind, to be courteous, to be thoughtful, respectful, than it does to be hateful. And I learned also that not everyone's going to like you. So, so what? And that's a hard lesson, though. When you look back, what is the greatest sacrifice that you made as a political spouse? Oh, see, I never viewed it as a sacrifice. We began as a, with, and I'll use me and our children first, because we lived in Arizona full time and my husband stayed in Washington, came home every weekend. So it was not a sacrifice. We viewed it as a family, as a deployment that he was deployed to Washington, D.C. And that's how I explained my, to my kids. He was serving his country. And so we never viewed it. I never, certainly never viewed it as a sacrifice. I guess the only thing that could be compared to that was when the second time around, the first time John ran for president, I was skeptical, but I thought, well, this will be a great adventure and he won't win. I mean, that's kind of how I went into it. But the second time around, I was seasoned. And so I think when John really surely came to me he took me, by the way, on a trip to the Maldives to, to ask me to run for president. Well, that's a good way to ask somebody to do anything. We had a great trip. And then it, towards the end of it, he said, I really want to do this. And I was not in the mood for it. I really wasn't. But I thought, who am I to say no to someone's biggest dream and biggest ambition? The only thing I should be doing is supporting him in that because he would support me if it were reversed. So I never really viewed it as a sacrifice, although there were days I really wanted to cut and run because it was so awful on the trail. As I said earlier, growing up, obviously so aware of both of you were, but I don't think I could contextualize or understand a lot about how you both were treated. And 
you in particular, but your family was under so much scrutiny. It's remarkable to think about how uncivil those things were back then. And we kind of all took for granted, or at least I'm sure you didn't, but at least as an outsider, I did. I want you to just sort of walk through what it is like to be critiqued on a public stage like that. Yeah. It's interesting because you're literally, as a woman, because women are held to higher standards or or maybe not higher standards, but different standards, women can be really nasty. <laughs> so being critiqued, I was critiqued for everything, hair, makeup, face. Oh, she's not smiling. She must be angry. So you couldn't win no matter what it was. If you smile too much, ooh, she must be drinking. I mean, you name it, That that's the kind of stuff that went on. But John and I were fair game. It was when they took out after our children that really, that was when I drew the line and said, this goes no further. Later on, I had to, as I tell the story in the book, my daughter Googled herself some years later, my youngest daughter, Bridget, and she Googled herself only to find out that what had happened, that people had, had written these terrible things about her, how she was a love child and all the things that you remember that were part of that. So I found myself just telling a 12 year old girl No, President Bush does not hate you. He does not hate you. This was politics, but it's a concept she's never gotten over. She's never recovered from that. So I think the one thing I'd like to remind people is that the kind of damage sometimes is life-changing. And in the case of my daughter, it has been life-changing. I mean, we've had to struggle in many different ways. So for all of us, it became surreal at many points. And it, that part is hard to really deal with as a family because you, I don't know how to, how do you say, yeah, these people are idiots for saying what they say, but, and still make them want to be part of the process, be part of serving their country. No, I, I cannot imagine that. I ask, and, and I like to sort of start these shows by understanding what somebody is like as a kid, because it really helps pave the way for their journey. And you described yourself as not that independent. You described yourself and your interaction, first interaction with John is not that confident. I can't imagine thinking about somebody with those characteristics, getting critiqued, getting scrutinized day in and day out, like what that does for self-esteem. How did you learn to survive that? How did you learn to take feedback and know how to filter it? I stopped reading it. I I literally went cold turkey, said, I'm not going to read another word about any of this. And I didn't. And some people may say, well, how could you do that? And some people will say, well, that was stupid. For me, it was the right thing because I think for many reasons, it could have been very damaging to me. It just, you have to do what's right for you. And remember, we were in a race. We were the last of the races against Obama where Twitter was not the guiding force in everything. Mm -hmm. We were still conversing and still, now things were nasty, but but Twitter was still not part of this. Nowadays, I think I would have said, hell no, we're not going to run with Twitter involved because <laughs> it can be debilitating. So what are the adjectives you use to describe yourself now? I think confident. I hope loving. I hope caring. I hope direct. I hope independent and worthy. So this is a career podcast and we talk so much about confidence on this show and we've been lucky to have so many different female leaders of all, all different backgrounds, all different industries. How did you find your confidence and how did you hold on to it? It's a real journey. And it was for me. When this began for me, when I knew I had confidence and discovered that I had it was when I was trying to, when I decided to bring these two babies home from Bangladesh and had everything in order, had the passports, had the, the nuns were with me, Mother Teresa's nuns. 
And then to have a room full of men, first of all, not speaking in a language that I can understand, and then turning around and saying, well, we can do, my daughter particularly had a cleft palate and the other one had a heart condition. And we can do these surgeries here in Bangladesh. But because of the lack of respect for women, there was no way they were going to operate on these kids. So I wound up slamming my fist on the table. And these are the health officials of the country and saying, well, God damn it, then do it. If you're going to, if you say you can do the surgeries, then do it because they need them. And these men completely backed off and started stamping things and like, get her out of the room kind of thing. Get her, let her go, let her go. I never knew where that came from, but I knew I needed it. And and ever since then, I've had a little more confidence and a little more confidence. And I love being helpful. I don't want people to ever think I was disrespectful, but I was caring about these two kids and they needed help. And I, maybe I was disrespectful by slamming my fist down, but it worked. Your daughter, Megan, is obviously also in the public and in headlines daily with her role in The View. How have you coached her around how to take feedback and how to hold on to that sense of confidence? Well, when she was born and throughout her youth, I you know, reminded her, you can do anything you want. You have to be strong, be independent. All the things we want to teach our daughters about being strong and being good people. And as it turned out, not only is she strong, but she's also John McCain in a dress. And so we, <laughs> we realized that early on. She gained all of the the things that John was so good at, the not just the confidence, but the strength and the standing up for what's right and her just her vision of the world. And so she's she's very, very, very strong. When you ask for something, make sure you want it when you get it. And boy, I wanted a strong daughter and I got it. <laughs> I certainly did with her. She's amazing. That's a good point. One painful moment that you write about and it was obviously occurred in the spotlight was your addiction to, to opioid painkillers. Back then, the press did not treat addiction matters with empathy or like an illness, which it is. I want to get your thoughts around that one, that time in your life and how you think about if that were to play out today. And then also we're talking in April of 2021, we're all still at home. And we're in a mental health crisis as a country right now. And if somebody is struggling with addiction, this year has not been a good year for them. And if somebody, a lot, all of our lives have been rocked in, in, certain, in some way. And that obviously affects how we bring ourselves to work and it affects how we bring ourselves to home, especially when home is work. And so I'm just really curious how you think that would play out today and your thoughts on that. Well, I think number one, and if I can speak to the past, the worst Worst, worst thing you can do to an addict is exactly what they did to me. And that is shame them, humiliate them, make fun of them, draw cartoons about them. I mean, you name it, that was done to me. And fortunately, I had a strong family and a very loving husband that helped me through this and helped me realize that it's an illness and it was not a mistake, it was an illness. And I will bring this to, to right now, and that is, and this is not to be political and I don't mean it to be, but in the case of Hunter Biden, whether you like him or not, whether you agree with him or not, I don't care. But the fact of the matter, they have once again shamed a man who is struggling in addiction. And the media has taken no sense of responsibility about helping him deal with this. Instead, they've made sure that he's the laughing stock of America. And I just find that 
wrong. And everyone, I like to remind people that everyone who's listening to this today has addiction either in themselves or in their families. This is a common thread that runs through our country. And until we can treat it as a national health crisis, we're never going to get a handle on it. And so I, I just, I encourage anybody who's listening today, who is struggling with this, to get help, get help immediately. There is help out there. And more importantly, don't be ashamed. It's okay to step forward and say, I am an addict. I need help. Or I am an alcoholic. I need help. Whatever it may be. And I like to tell people, you have the strength in you to do it. But that first step is the hardest. And so it's, a, like I said, I, I, I pray to God they never do anything. The, pr the press or the country never does anything to anybody else the way they did to me and to Hunter Biden. I very much agree with you. Switching gears, your husband ran for president very famously twice. I have no idea what it would be like to be the spouse in that situation and how grueling that must be. What is like the most exhausting thing about it? Give me an example of a day where you're like, if I have to smile one more time, set the stage for us there. Obviously what you're describing is the pace of it. And the pace is incredible. I mean, if you're running and running hard, then you're into 18 hour days, 20 hour days sometimes. And also for me personally, keeping things straight, like, and this sounds maybe sounds kind of trite, but once again, people are very careful as to what they look and criticize you about. Making sure you didn't wear the same outfit too often, making sure that your clothes are clean. I want to pause there for a second, because what you just said is something that is really specific to women. And if you read Hillary Clinton's book, she's like, I hate that I have to write a chapter about like how often I got my hair done, but that was a part of the day. And even recently, Danielle, my co-founder and I, we were talking to some male CEOs and we were talking about what are some of the things that like we haven't had to do in this past year. And one of the things was how much time we've saved by not having to do hair and makeup. And they were like, really, how much time does that take for you? And we were like, do you have any idea how much thought we have to like think about that? And we're nowhere near as close to the public stage that you are on. Those are not actually trivial things. It all goes to the image of strength that you put forth and the image of being a leader that is very singular to a woman's experience and especially a woman in business's experience. I'm really curious your thoughts on that because you're right. You would get judged wearing the same thing twice. No, you're absolutely right. And you bring up a, a very good point, which I was about to is hair and makeup. All of that was part of my daily routine. And it, it kind of infuriated me because why are people paying so much attention to that when they should be paying attention to what's really important? But nevertheless, it was part of it. And it is infuriating. I could watch my husband and 15 minutes he was done and out the door and in the same suit he'd worn probably twice that week kind of thing, just a different tie. It, it really had consequences and it is something, it's a double standard, I believe for women and men in terms of how you were judged and how you were criticized, but it's part of the presidential game. You learn to accept it, and I did, and you learn to, to deal with it. But with all of that said though, remember, there's no heavy lifting in this job. And this is a job that could have catapulted my husband to the highest office in the land. So remember through all this, it is a great honor to do what we did to be selected as the nominee of your party for president. So yeah, things were tight. Sometimes things were hard and tempers flared, et cetera, that kind of stuff that 
but we are very lucky people to be able to have done what we did. What was the the toughest day on the campaign trail in the last election? In the last presidential race? Yeah. For me, it was, it, it was toughest days because we had a son in combat. I had a son deployed and he was on active duty in Iraq. He was a Marine and he was in combat. So every day, I mean, people, I was criticized again for holding my phone all the time. Well, I wasn't holding it, just to hold it. At any time my son could have called, I wanted to have my phone in my hand or have someone behind me that had it in their hand because I didn't want to miss his call. And so that whole experience of having a child in combat and also not being able to talk about it, because all I wanted to do was talk about what a hero he was, and I couldn't because the press would have tried to have found him and they could have endangered both him and his buddies. So it was, that was very stressful. That, for me, was an overall stress breaker for me. You lost your husband in, in 2018, which was a loss felt not only around the country, but around the world. The name of your book is called Stronger, and you wrote about staying strong for others, even when your heart is breaking. Nearly impossible thing to do. How did you do that? How have you done that? Well, through, through the illness and, and then through the immediate funeral and death, which I know you're, you were mentioning there, I had to. John, first of all, John would have been very disappointed in me if I'd been a blubbering mess. But number two, you find the strength because you now are the person that is the caretaker of your family. You're alone. You're the only one. And so always keeping in mind that I had to be strong for them. And it was important. And I also agree or disagree, but I felt like I needed to be strong for the country because we had stepped into to a morass, as you know. And I believe that the country needed to see that not just me, but that the McCain family were strong and that his legacy would live on. And so that's, that was where I was coming from in that. It was the days after that that I learned how, again, to try to be strong. It was the mo- days and months after that, when you're all of a sudden, the, the people are gone, the food that everyone dropped off is gone, and you're alone in the house. And that's where you learn what strength is. Because I, I, I'll say, I never, I, I hit the road. As soon as John died, I was back at work. I was rightfully or wrongfully, whether I, I don't know whether I should have done that or not, but I did. And then the pandemic comes along and I'm up north at our ranch alone most of the time. That was actually good for me because it, it gave me time to grieve and it gave me time to really put my head on in terms of being strong and knowing that I could do this, that I could take this family forward and, and do with it what John would want me to do. But it's a real journey. I'll say, I mean, anyone, any death is a journey, but to do it in a public manner that's worldwide is even doubly hurtful. When you are being a rock for everyone else, who do you break down to? Who can you fall apart to? That's exactly it. I didn't uh, in the beginning. So this time I had alone up at a ranch was very cathartic. I mean, it really kind of, I think, there because there was nobody there, it still is very difficult for me to confide or to really give deep feelings. Even to my closest friends, it's still hard for me. But being able to work through, I'll, you know, I, I was angry at times too. I was angry. Why, why did, you know, you're, why did you leave me? You know, I mean, that's not what it is. He didn't have a choice, but you have to kind of get through all that, especially as a widow, I think. And and the expectations that are then laid on you by so many people to carry on is 
another thing you have to weed through. And now I've gotten through a lot of that and now the opportunity to do something for myself. And I've never been in that position before. So I'm, I'm looking forward to whatever adventure lies next. What's an adventure that you want to take that you haven't done yet? I want to work, uh, continue to work. I actually have worked a great deal around the world on issues of human trafficking and, and human rights. And I want to continue that in a major, in a worldwide manner. Of course, the McCain Institute is part of this. And I work with many different organizations. But the work that I do from a human rights standpoint is very, very important to me. And it's very important that we continue it. And so that to me is a great adventure. You are a very strong advocate of civility in politics. And your husband was famously known for his bipartisanship and, and his work across the aisles. I don't want to even say, what do you think about politics today? Because you've said a lot and like, what can you say? But I do want to ask you, how does this get better? Well, it gets better because those of us who have a voice and that, and by that, I mean, all of us that have a voice need to tell our politicians that's what we want. Civility in politics, it's not necessary, it's urgent. I mean, it's, we've lost our way. And unfortunately, our past leader helped us lose our way in that respect. It's unacceptable for people to yell, shut up in a House committee hearing. No matter how you feel about the person talking on the other side, remember civility. It, it's up to you personally first to take the step and you be civil and be civil to everyone else. And I think we should hold our politicians to a higher standard. It's unacceptable to have the things done that have, that have been done for someone to encourage people to overtake the Capitol. I mean, that, it, I'm, I'm not, obviously I would love to have had my husband here, but I'm almost glad he never saw that because I don't think he would have believed it. None of us would have and did, none of us did. I still don't believe that happened and that somehow people were encouraging it and it's just the whole thing. And, and I think the internet has exacerbated a lot of that. And I also believe that obviously the internet, but of course our social media platforms given free reign and anonymously by the way, to say whatever hateful thing you wanna say is wrong. If you want to say it, then put your name on it. If you're going to say it. But I think all of us realize that, but it's time that we do something about it. If there's one takeaway from your book, what do you want it to be? I want it to be that, that women not only have the right, but the privilege of being strong. I come from a group of people that believe that when women are involved around the world, things are better. And I'll use Africa as an example. But in the countries where women took charge and said, we've had enough of this crap with you guys, you know, kind of thing. All you guys do is fight. We want education for our children and healthcare, And they did it. And so consequently, you're seeing countries emerge into a society that is much healthier. So I would like people to take from my book that service is important as a woman. Service to your country is important in whatever may, way it may be. And service to yourself knowing that you are valued, you are a human being that is worth something. And I really had to discover that. And I think a lot of women do too, still need to discover that. And I hope they do at least a little bit through this book. We're gonna move into our last round, our, our lightning round. Okay, morning person or night owl? Morning. Favorite quick dinner to me? Chicken. First job? I worked in a recycling plant, shoveling cans. 
Uh, you and John dated long distance at certain points. Best tip for a long distance relationship. Oh, don't text things. We couldn't text in those days. But nowadays, don't text <laughs> your feelings. Talk to them. I mean, that, that's the beauty of speech, right? <laughs> All right. I want to actually do some word association. So I'm going to say a word. You tell me the first thing that comes to mind. DC. Privilege. Honor. Quarantine cocktail. Watermelon margarita. <laughs> I became famous for that. Oh, my God. <laughs> you, you really did. Sarah Palin. Smart. The View. My daughter. Okay, last question. First trip you want to take when things have calmed down? Maldives. All right, I, I hope to see you there. That sounds lovely. Sydney McCain, thank you so much. Really a pleasure to have you and congratulations. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 